I am extremely excited to be able to teach you this passage today. It has been a week of worship for me. There comes a place in Jesus' sermons where He turns on the glory light, I guess you could say, and gives a glimpse of His glory. And we've been going through this sermon of Jesus for several weeks now. Today He turns on the glory light and shows Himself off. I'm so excited because I get to share with you the glory of our God today. Many of you are visitors with us today, and we just want to thank you for coming. You could not have picked a better Sunday to come here. We are in a passage in Luke that I am convinced should shake every one of us, should cause all of us to bow in all-out worship towards our God. We've been looking at Jesus' teaching of His disciples. In the midst of this huge crowd, Jesus is directing His teaching to some disciples. And in this time of discipleship, Jesus addresses His followers. And He says to them as a whole, in a sense, are you really my follower? Are you a ready servant? Much like in the church today, there are disciples that are people that follow Jesus for cultural reasons and just kind of come to church. And then there are those that are real, sold-out, committed followers of Jesus. And Jesus has been addressing these disciples that were following Him. And in that group were some faithful servants. And then there were some unfaithful servants. And so Jesus addresses His disciples and He says... Which servant are you like, in effect? He says, are you like the faithful servant who is ready for his master's return? Or are you like the unfaithful servant who is not ready for his master's return? Or are you like the unfaithful servant that has information but is really rejecting the information when it comes to your real heart commitment? In this sermon, Jesus did what many of the epistles in the New Testament do. The writers of the New Testament epistles, the letters, say, evaluate your heart. Check your heart. You tell me where you stand with God. For example, like in James chapter 1, James says, but prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror, for once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of a person he was. In other words, has the word really impacted your life? Do you know the gospel? And if so, you should be a doer of the word, not just a hearer of the word or a seer of the word. In, Paul, in Corinthians, Paul says this, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourself? That Jesus Christ is in you, 
unless indeed you fail the test. In effect, Paul is calling them here to examine or evaluate their hearts to see if they are a ready servant, if they're a real, true follower of Jesus. This sermon that Jesus has been preaching in Luke chapter 12 has a twofold effect. The first is for the faithful servant. In this, there's an exhortation to persevere in their commitment to Christ. In other words, all of us that are true believers, this sermon should call us to continue to persevere and walk with Him, trusting in Him, avoiding hypocrisy, not fearing man, not worrying. So there's a call for sanctification. To be who you are in Christ, live different. But there's also the second fold effect, which is to call those that are not genuine believers to really repent, to turn and accept and embrace Christ as their Savior and Lord. So there is two effects. One is to sanctify the believer, and two is to call the unbeliever to really Commit to Christ and turn to Him. So Jesus is calling all the followers to either be a faithful servant or become a faithful servant, in effect. Jesus is saying, get off the fence. Be a committed follower. And for the true believer, He's saying, continue in your commitment. Resolve in your hearts. Trust in Me. Rely upon Me. Enjoy me, treasure me above all else. The sermon has that effect. And it has that effect for you here in this room. Listen to me closely. You're only in two camps. You're either outside or inside. That's it. Which one are you? I want you to evaluate yourself. And I've got good news for you. Trust in Christ. That is the message. He is good. He is your hope. So the natural question for all of you in here is which one are you? A faithful servant or an unfaithful servant? A committed follower or an uncommitted follower? And then the natural question would be are you ready for him to return? Or aren't you? Why should we be ready also? In light of the fact that Jesus calls them to be this way, to follow Him and to be a committed, faithful servant, the natural question would be, why should we follow Jesus? Why? Right? Why should we give everything to Him? Why should we be willing to give up everything that we have to follow Him? Why should we value Him than all else? Why? And that's where Jesus comes in the sermon. He says, you ready? Here's the answer. Because of who I am and what I will do. Listen. Why do we who are faithful servants lay our lives down, want to follow Christ, would die for Him? Why? The answer is real clear. And it's singular. It's because of who Christ is. And what he has done. That's what Jesus says. Today we come to the heart of the message. And the heart of the message is Christ. 
Him. He's worthy of all of our enjoyment and delight. He's the primary focus. It's all about Christ. Now, there is no preacher on the planet that could ever preach this sermon. No one has ever or ever will except for Christ. See, the punchline of every one of my sermons, the best of my sermons, is always deflecting off of me and onto Christ. It's all about Him. No preacher that exalts himself is worthy of being listened to. But only Christ can say, now listen to me, listen to me. It's all about me. Only Jesus can do that because he's the God-man. And that's what he does here, folks. He says, be ready for me to return because of who I am. That's what he says. Look, I want you to notice in our passage that there's a change in subjects, main subjects. It goes from talking about them to talking about himself. If you look down in your Bible, notice in our passage from 49 to 53, you see this. The main subject is I. It's now I. It's him. And it's repeated numerous times. And the main verb goes from what you should do to what I'm going to do. The verbs are about Christ and what he accomplishes and what he wants. So Jesus, in effect, says, okay, I want you to do this. But look at me, that's why. I want you to be a faithful servant. But look at me, that's why. That's what he says here. It's beautiful. Look, he says, I have come. He says, I wish it was already kindled. He says, I have a baptism to undergo. He says, I am distressed until it's accomplished. The focus is on him and what he will accomplish now. It's a beautiful little observation that says, Jesus is the reason for our obedience and faithfulness. We are faithful to the master not to earn our right standing with God. We are faithful to the master because of who he is and what he's done. That's crucial. Why should we be a ready slave? Answer, because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That's your motivation. It's not complicated. You just need to know how great Christ is. The more you know how glorious He is, the more you will want to follow and obey Him. That's what He's getting at. If you're not a faithful servant, it's because your understanding of Jesus is small. You don't get how great He is. If you are a faithful servant of Christ... Is because you know the Master and you know Him well. Let's read our passage again. Look, I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo 
and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I come came to grant peace on the earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. In this passage, we see Jesus gives two purposes of his ministry, for his ministry. We see who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. Today, I want to walk down through this passage and look at these two key purposes of our Lord and his work. And hopefully, this will motivate you to be a faithful slave of Jesus Christ. Now, this passage is filled with picture languages. So we're going to go slowly, and we're going to walk through it, and we're going to understand it so we can understand who Jesus is so that we will then be a faithful slave of our Master. First, I want you to notice the first purpose Jesus came. Jesus came to establish two distinct groups of people on earth. Jesus came to establish two distinct groups of people on earth. The first purpose for Jesus' coming is to divide those who are for God and those who are against God. To make a clear line in the sand. They're for me or against me. Again, there's only two choices. Here or here. You're either for him or against him, and he came to make that line clear. That was his purpose. Notice he explains his purpose by two distinct groups, in two ways he says it. First he says, he came to cast fire upon the earth. He came to cast fire upon the earth. In verse 49 it says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Now, He uses this picture of fire. And when we think of fire, we think of pain, right? Ouch! Fire can burn. It can hurt, right? Well, in Scripture, often fire is associated with judgment. So Jesus has come to bring judgment? Wait a second. He says in other passages, I did not come to judge, but to save. How is this? We'll talk about it in a minute. Fire reveals something also. Fire reveals what is true and what is false. Fire also burns up the bad and reveals the good. Fire judges the bad and purifies the good. And that is why he came. The Bible is very clear. Fire is judgment, but it also has an idea of purifying and showing what is legit. Luke chapter 12, after all, in context, talking about judgment, verse 47, he says, And the slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act accordingly with his will will receive many lashes. So he's talking about judgment. And he says the slave that's not ready will get many lashes, right? That's judgment. So he says, I came to cast fire. And this is an aspect of the judgment. Okay? 
He also says in Luke 12, 40, You too, be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. So he's coming and he's going to bring about judgment. Be ready. In verse 4 and 5, he says this back at the beginning of the sermon. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, they have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So no matter how you look at it, there is an aspect of judgment in I came to cast fire, correct? It's there. He's talking about judgment. But we'll see how it fits together with this whole purifying aspect. I think it's best to see it with this picture. This right here is a picture of gold. Gold being burned. When you first get the gold, it has black. I remember when I was a little kid, one of my friends brought me, one of my older friends brought me a little nugget of gold. And it was black. It was it only had little specks of gold. And I thought, wow, this is worth so much. Wow. And he told me, no, it's probably a couple dollars. The reality is, is that it's got a lot of black impurities, other stones, types of stones that are with it, and it's sealed in that. And it has to be burned off. And when you burn it off, the bad is destroyed and the good is made refined. Today, this is what it looks like. Gold, they melt it and they burn off the impurities. It judges the bad, in a sense, and purifies the good. And that's what Jesus is about. He judges the bad and purifies or sanctifies the believer through who he is and what he has done. Jesus' purpose in coming is to reveal who is false and who is true. Who is the faithful servant and who is the unfaithful servant? He came to distinguish the pure from the wicked. Notice he takes a break from explaining the purpose of his distinguishing ministry here and then speaks about, in verse 50, about his second purpose. And then he comes back to it, the first idea of dividing in verse 51. We'll come back to verse 50 in a second. But we're going to skip ahead to verse 51 and look at how he also explains this division. Notice, Jesus came to bring division upon the earth. It says it. He says it. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division? For from now on, five members... And one household will be divided three against two and two against three. Now, I don't know about you, but this isn't a verse that's preached often, is it? Especially if you're a topical preacher, you're going to avoid this one. Because who is Jesus? He's the Prince of Peace. Right? He's the Prince of Peace. Yet he says, I didn't come to give peace. What? Wait, does that contradict? Is he a, is he a savior of peace or a, a savior that divides? The answer is yes. A savior of peace and a savior that divides. Let's look. In Luke chapter 2, if you're reading through Luke, you see this. The angels proclaim when Jesus is born, what? Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among men with whom he is pleased. 
There's peace because of Jesus. Or, how about Luke chapter 7? Jesus is talking and he says to this woman, Your faith has delivered you, saved you. Go in peace. He brought peace to her. Wait a second. Is this a contradiction? He says, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? He says, I tell you no. I came, rather, for division. Well, Jesus, you just told this lady she has peace. You gave it to her. And here you're saying what? No, I came to divide. Well, there's a key, key element of who the peace is for. Who is the peace for? It's for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's those on this side of the fence. We have peace in Christ. We love Him and we are at peace with God. He is no longer mad at us. He's no longer wrathful towards us. Because, we'll see in a second, his second purpose. But, there is a division that happens. The line in the sand has been drawn. How do we reconcile these? True believers have peace. Unbelievers don't have peace with God. And in fact, they're at enmity with the believer. Jesus and his work is the line in the sand, ladies and gentlemen. Listen to me closely. I cannot stress this enough to you. Jesus and his work is the line in the sand that says, in effect, if you're here, you're with me. If you're here, you're against me. And if you're against me, you're against my people, and there is enmity. You know the old saying. In the old days, remember... Maybe you'd heard this. They used to say, if you step across that line, you're going to have something to do with me. Right? Well, you step across that line, accepting and embracing the true work of Jesus Christ, you step across that line, you're with me. And everybody else is against you. Facts. There's division. And that division breaks through natural relationships. Good relationships. Relationships that God has ordained. It comes right down and says, Jesus is more important. And if you don't believe in Jesus, then your family might dislike you. That's what it says. That's what he says. Why do you think Jesus would say, you must love me more than father, mother, brother, sister? Why? Because he becomes more valuable to us than our own family. This is a faithful servant. One who knows Jesus and embraces Jesus above all else. He's more important. Look, the family's the family is Earth's most treasured relationship. 
in most cultures, not always in ours. While I agree our culture fails to hold up the family, the fact of the matter is, is that still it is a bond. I mean, y'all can all testify to this, right, most of us? We would say we love our parents as a whole, right? But the love of our parents must pale in comparison to our love of God. In fact, it should be so distinct that Jesus says, not just love me more, he says, you must hate your mother, father, brother, sister. What? What's he saying? That in comparison to relationship, your commitment to me must be more than anybody. It must be your primary thing. Let me ask you a question. Who in the world could say that? Who could say that? Could any preacher say, you better love me more than your own family? I mean, think about that. That sounds like, you know, one of those cult guys, right? David Koresh or something, right? The only one, listen closely, that is worthy of that kind of commitment is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He made you, and he bought you. He died for you, and if you are a genuine believer in him, he is worthy of all of your commitment. That's what a faithful servant knows. And that's what a faithful servant will do. We value our Lord more than anything else. The reason Jesus is a divider is because anyone who truly embraces Jesus as their Lord and Savior will ultimately reject anyone who is not completely committed to Jesus. Now, wait a second. How far do we take this? I mean, let's face it. Our children, three, four, five, six, maybe not believers yet, they're at enmity with God. As they walk into the house, after out being outside playing, you say, wicked, wretched sinner, I hate you. <laughs> no. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. That's not the division. Here's, the, here's what problem that many people have. They, we have actually been accused of being a cult, even our church. Because people say, man, the family or the church, man, y'all are so close. You just like the Bible all the time. You're committed to each other. What is this? Craziness. Listen, whatever you do, whatever you do, Jesus has made it very clear. We love our enemies. We love those that hate him, and that we love those that hate us, right? We are sacrificially committed to even those that hate us, just like Jesus was sacrificially committed to us who first hated him until he saved us. 
The division happens because the unbeliever hates you. They're jealous of your affection. You value Christ and they say, why? Why do you value Christ so much? Why don't you value me more? There's the division. The person in work of Christ drives me to value him more than my wife and more than my kids as much as I love them. My love for them is based only on my love for Christ first and foremost. And by the way, you really don't love a family member You really don't love a family member if you value them over Christ. Did you hear me? That's a staggering thought. If you value, you tell your family member, I love you so much, we won't go to church today. It's not really that important to listen to the Bible and read it every day. It's really not. You're more important. You say, you're an idol. And I want to worship you instead of God. And you drive them straight to hell. You say they're more valuable than God. We can never do that. Our family should look at us and say, you love Jesus. Because it's there. That their hope is found. In Christ. In Christ alone. Who's the main subject of the sermon? Christ. Jesus Christ. Yeah. It's funny. Man. Just the amazing sovereign hand of our God last night. I got to tell you about what happened. It's amazing. I'm looking for her too. I don't see her here. But. I'll use her as an illustration. I went into Starbucks, sitting down, working on my sermon, finishing it up. I'm at this point, and I need this illustration. I'm like, man, Jesus really does divide, doesn't he? He divides, doesn't he? I'm sitting here. I'm going to try something. And I look over at this lady sitting right here beside me. I say, can I, just, can I ask you a question? Takes her head, sit off, looks over at me. Says, sure. I said, What do you think of Jesus? She said, her face dejects. Oh, well, that's a long long story. I'll make it short. I was raised a Lutheran, Missouri Senate. But I converted to Judaism. 30 years ago, I converted to Judaism. And now, that's what I'm about. I'm a Jew. I thought to myself, hmm, really? Keep all the law? Just a little bit. I didn't go there. I said, so you would reject Jesus as the Messiah to the Jews? Oh, yes, most definitely. He is not the Messiah for the Jews. She put her headset on and turned straight ahead, wouldn't look at me anymore. Every once in a while, her Jewish friend... Both of them were not Jewish. They were converted Jewish. Yeah, we won't go there. 
you could hear all the stuff. And they were talking. They would talk occasionally in Hebrew to each other. I was like, oh, cool, you've learned a little bit of Hebrew. Sitting there, and so I said, ah, this is perfect. I'll put this lady down. You know, it divides, me against her, obvious. She's not happy. Looked over to the right of me, and there was another lady, Korean-American lady. And I said, can I ask you a question? Sure. I said, what do you think of Jesus? She said, oh, I love him. I said, really? You love him? She said, yes, I, I love him. I said, well, why do you love him? What, what is it about him that you love? Oh, he's everything to me. I said, really? What did he do for you? He died to pay for my forgiveness. I was like, whoa, God. Division right here. There's a line. Love Jesus, hate Jesus. It's clear. You know him. You love him. You reject him. You hate him. Very simple. Not complex. God amazing. Put me right there in the middle of my sermon preparation. Had me right in the middle of the divide. So I was leaving. Or first the, the Korean American lady left. I invited her to church. She had to come. I said, please come. I'm going to use you tomorrow. <laughs> come to church. Come to church. Come to church. I said, I won't tell. <laughs> but she wasn't here, so I told her. <laughs> I, I, I won't tell. I won't point her out is what I said. And so she's not here, so I didn't, I'm not really pointing her out. But she's probably outside there. Ah! She's running. As she left, she went. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for encouraging me to come to church. Reminded me that my Savior loves me. It's great. She just walked out encouraged. So I packed up everything. Started walking out the door. Looked back to the Jewish lady. Said, Bye. And you know, she wanted to be nice initially. You know, it was like, Okay, somebody's saying bye to me, so I should say hi. Bye. Bye. I mean, her eyes, her face, it was like, bye. And I walked out the door. And as I walked out the door, I looked back, and she was shaking her head with disgust. Talking to the Jewish guy. Pointing at me. All I did was ask her about who... What did she think of Jesus? That's all I asked. Two questions. And she hated me. It was staggering. Perfect illustration, isn't it? If you love Jesus, the world will hate you. Fact. He came to divide. Well, how would the world love you if you don't love Jesus? If you're not committed to him? Then the world will think you're just like them. They will have no problem with you. 
By the way, this does not mean let's start some crusades and go kill the Muslims. <laughs> Give me a break. Isn't that just the way the world is? They label go kill Muslims as a Christian duty. That is not the true church. Sorry, it's not the true church. A church that values Jesus lays down their life for their enemy. They don't kill their enemy. Now, you know all the implications behind that. We'll probably talk about it systematic today. But let's go on. Jesus said, Do you not think that I came to bring peace on the earth? I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Look at this. How many of you know John 3.16? Everybody's got it memorized, right? How many of you know John 3.16, 3.17, 3.18, 3.19, 3.20? Nobody. <laughs> She's 17. Look at this. How about the verses right before it? You know what those verses? Hey, by the way, what's the first word in John 3.16? Somebody, please. Four. How many of you start sentences with four? Anybody start? You walk up to Mark. Hey, Mark, four. <laughs> I was thinking the other day. Four. Nobody does that. But yet we memorize John 3.16 and it starts with four. Four is there for a reason. It's explaining the verses before it. Look. John 3.14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's talking about Jesus' death to come. So that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. Those who embrace Jesus, the one who dies in their place, will have eternal life. Because for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not die, but have eternal life. Those who believe in the one that died and rose from the dead, those are the ones that God gives eternal life to. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. What? thought He did. But that the world might be saved through Him. Wait a second. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe him has been judged already. The rejection of Christ means your judgment is sure. The rejection of Christ means you will take the punishment you deserve instead of trusting in Christ to pay for your judgment. You reject Christ, you get judgment. You receive Christ, you get eternal life. Because he died in your place. This is the judgment. That the light has come. That's Jesus. Has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light. For their deeds were evil. By the way, belief in the gospel of John. Implies a heart change. Jesus came into the world. Belief is more than just head knowledge. Belief is a commitment of the heart that evidences itself in obedience to the master. That's what he says. The light comes in the world, but the world 
hates the light because they love their deeds of evil. So they don't turn from Him to trust in Him. They don't turn from themselves and their sin to trust in Him. So they get what they deserve. For everyone who does not does evil is continually trapped in evil and does not turn to Jesus. Hates the light and does not come to the light. For the fear that his deeds will be exposed. Why do they hate you? Why does your family members, some of them, hate you? Because you exalt Jesus Christ in his holiness. Do you understand? When you exalt Jesus Christ in his holiness, they're going to hate you. But who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been worked, wrought in God. God works in us who believe in him. Look very clearly. The gospel is that Jesus has come to save repentant believers in him. If we believe, we are saved from God's judgment. But we stand in judgment if we have rejected Jesus. The line is in the sand. Are you for him or are you against him? Very clear. And Jesus has come to draw that line in the sand. If you are with me, then the world is against you. Notice the family unit in our passage. Five members, by the way, He doesn't mess up his addition in this passage. Father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother against mother-in-law, mother-in-law against daughter, rather. Why does it say that? We've got it mixed up. I don't know why it copied over that way. The reality is this. The mother can be the mother of a daughter and the mother of a daughter-in-law. Still five people. Do you understand? Her son can have a wife. And if her son has a wife, the wife and the son can be against the mother. Why? Commitment to Christ. That's the dividing line. John 15, 18 says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. There's so much implied by that little phrase. Members of the body of Christ will be your true family, ladies and gentlemen. That's what we are. We are the body of Christ. Oh, it's such a beautiful picture. I wish all of you could sit up here and be where I'm at. When I look out at this church, I absolutely just go, God, you are so magnificent. It is a kaleidoscope of beauty. We've got different tribes, tongues, complexions, hairdos, eye color. Hearing, non-hearing is beautiful. And it's the family of God in Christ Jesus. Yet you who are a kaleidoscope go back to your homes that look like you. And if they're not all committed to Christ, they hate you. No, you say, but they don't hate me, do they?
Folks, listen to me. They love you for what you can give them. They don't love you because of your love for Christ. It's hard to hear, I know. But it's the truth. Ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't matter, though. For us who are in Christ, we are satisfied with Christ. And we love Him anyway. Notice Jesus came to establish these works, these two groups, by His great work on earth. Then we drop back to verse 50. Oh, man, I wish I could preach for another hour. <laughs> this passage right here is just absolutely staggering. If you're, if you're getting a little tired, don't worry about it. Call on the Lord to give you some more attention. Because you're about to hear the best news you've ever heard in your whole entire life. Right here. You're about to hear it. The most spectacular, the most beautiful, the most awesome, the most glorious news you've ever heard in your entire life is found in verse 50. Look at it. But I have a baptism to overcome, or undergo. And how distressed I am until it is accomplished. At first glance, the second verse of our passage appears to not fit. It is almost like a side note. <laughs> but this isn't true. See, it is the work of Christ that makes the clarifying fire powerful. It is the work of Christ at the cross that draws the line in the sand. It is the work of Christ that makes the fire kindled. It's what he says. Look, he says he wishes that the fire was already kindled. What is it that brings the fire and makes it hot? And ready to divide. What is it? It's not a side note. It's I've got to go through a baptism. And the baptism is not John the Baptist's baptism because he's already been baptized. It's the baptism of the cross. Romans 6 talks about Jesus dying as a picture of baptism. His death is the baptism he must undergo for the fire to be kindled. The gospel of the person and work of Jesus Christ is the line in the sand that makes the fire hot. It's beautiful. What had to happen in order for the message of Jesus to have the effect of perfect division? What had to happen? Jesus had to die. I have a baptism I must be immersed in. He uses another picture, that baptism. The idea of it is to be totally immersed in something. Jesus must take it completely. And by the way, what does he take completely? Fire. 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 That's what Jesus took on the cross. He took our fire. 
He took our judgment. Staggering thought. Jesus had to be totally covered up with God's wrath. Look, folks, Jesus knew full well what he was going to face. Look, he says, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. He knew how bad it was. How did he know? How did he know how bad it was? Some people say, well, it was the nails in the hand. He knew what crucifixion was like. No. It wasn't the nails in the hands. It wasn't the beating. Who on this planet has had a perfect view of the holiness of God? Who knew it better than anybody else? Jesus Christ, the God-man. He knew how holy God was, didn't he? Do you think he knew how just he was? Did he, did he know the flames of hell and what it was like? Did he know how bad it was? He definitely had a high view of God, didn't he? He also had a very accurate view of mankind. <laughs> he knew how totally depraved you sinners are. <laughs> and how totally depraved I was. He knows sin. He knows how wicked men are. That verse in John is a beautiful one. He didn't trust himself to anybody because he knew what was in man. He had a high view of God and an accurate view of mankind. And what happens when these two collide? Judgment. Jesus said, or God said in Exodus 34, 7, He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. By no means leave the guilty unpunished. What does that mean? Holy God will punish sinful man. What does that mean for us who are his followers? He will take it. He will take our punishment. Don't you think that would be a little distressing? His whole life looked at the cross. Every sin he saw had to be judged. Every sin of his followers he looked at. He knew they had to be judged. Be a faithful follower of me and I will die for you. And Christ will lay down his life for his sheep. How distressed until I am until it is accomplished. Oh, this, this word is staggering. <laughs> this word accomplished. One Greek word. One Greek word. Listen to me, ladies and gentlemen. It is my favorite word in all the Bible. Next to Jesus himself. 
It is the word. I love that word. It is a beautiful word. You know when he said it again? His last word. Telestai! Finished! Accomplished! Paid! Done! For me. Why me? I need you. If this message will not cause you to fall and worship Christ for with all your life, you have completely missed it. Christ came to die to pay for sinners like me and you. How many want to be a faithful follower of him? It's not hard, is it? It's actually a privilege, isn't it? Ladies and gentlemen, at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he do this? For it is at this moment that the wrath of God had fallen upon the Son of God. The justice of God met the sinfulness of man. And he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might have the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And literally he says, it is finished. One word, telestai. Finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You ask me why? Why should I be a faithful servant? The answer? Because of who Jesus is and what he's done. You ask me why Jesus is more valuable than my children and my wife and all my family? Because of Jesus and what he did for me. You ask me why I will follow him even if it means persecution. It's because of Jesus and what he did for me. Ladies and gentlemen, until you know this truth, you won't be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ.
You must embrace Him. Turn from your sins and trust in Him alone to save you. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it is the power of God for us who are being saved by it. I want to warn you. If you reject this message of Jesus Christ and who He is, you will face a fire from the Lamb. The fire has been kindled. And the Lamb is waiting for the Word from the Father to step out. Now I know y'all are saying, wait, here comes the fire and judgment again. (laughs) Fire and brimstone. No, that's what the Bible says. Revelation 6.15 This is right when Jesus has already taken the church. He is now pouring out His judgment on the earth. Look at what the kings of the earth say. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in caves and among the rocks and the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Who wants to face God's wrath? I've got good news for you. Jesus came to take your wrath. Repent of your sins. Trust in Christ. Give your life to Him. And it will be finished. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. Trust in Christ. Forsake your sin and trust Christ alone. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for what you did, what you accomplished. Glorious truth. Glorious truth, God. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for accomplishing what we could not. Thank you for taking our judgment. Oh God, please help us. By your grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within us. To glorify you only, God. To humbly seek and serve you. And God, when we begin to stray, discipline us. Drive us back to yourself. That we may exalt Christ first, foremost, the utmost, the all in all. Thank you, Father, for him. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.